Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a very special guest, a guy I've been watching and reading his books for a number of years. His name is Stephen Kotler. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He has 13 books total, nine of which are bestsellers, which is amazing. Some of them are called The Art of Impossible, uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold, and Abundance. Uh, his work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages. He's appeared in over 100 publications, including New York Times Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Time, Harvard Business Review. Uh, he's also the co-host of the Flow Research Collective Radio, uh, a top 10 iTunes science podcast. So along with his wife, uh, author Joy Nicholson, he's the co-founder of Rancho de Chihuahua, a hospice and special needs dog sanctuary. And I'm glad to have him today. So Steve, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know that you had, uh, I guess I would call it an accident or a, kind of a, a really traumatic event that kind of set your, your life on a new course. So can you talk about that? Yeah, it's, I'm actually going to back it up a, a, just uh, 10 years earlier, not seven years earlier from that a little bit, because it'll make mm. a lot more sense because uh, it help it helps put the new book in context. Also, okay. um, Go ahead. when I uh, became a journalist, which was my first career, it was in the early 1990s. And I had sort of twin interests and, and journalism is, is a great career, uh, that allows you to kind of exploit your curiosity. And I was deeply passionate about both action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding and the like and neuroscience and psychology. And so I was writing a ton about neuroscience and psychology in the nineties were an amazing era, uh, in, you know, in those fields because there was so much going on, but, uh, action sports was a totally different thing in the 1990s. Action sports went through what's often referred to now as the great era of impossible, meaning more things that had never been done before and were believed never going to be done, not actually physically possible. Uh, they were being done on a, on a daily kind of weekly basis. And it, w- it was an astounding era. I'll just give you a simple example. We enter the decade and the biggest wave anybody's ever surfed is 25 feet. And above that, people were convinced the human body couldn't take the forces, couldn't paddle into it. Um, nobody could, nobody could do it. And, and surfing's an old sport. It's a thousand years old. So this is, there's a long track record of history saying 25 feet is the biggest we can surf. There's physics papers saying the human body can't take more than that, et cetera. And yet today, just a couple dozen years later, surfers routinely paddle into waves that are almost a hundred feet tall. And yeah, they need to do like what tow in surfing. Well, they started towing, um, and that sort of unlocked the barrier. And then uh, there's a story I recount in my book Rise of Superman, where I really talk about all, all this stuff. Uh, Ian Walsh figured out how to paddle into a wave that was 60 feet tall, and it's gone up since then. So they started towing, but they're now paddling, and that's just one example. Uh, snowboarding, skiing, the biggest 
cliff anybody had ever jumped and they thought it was the limit the human body could take was 70 feet when the decade started by the end of the decade it was over 300 feet these this kind of progress was everywhere in action sports and it's sort of one thing to see uh the impossible on a screen when you're watching somebody do this. But like I was living in these communities. I was skiing with these guys. I was snowboarding with these guys. I was surfing with these guys. And it's a really different thing when you go out drinking with somebody on a Friday night and then you wake up Saturday morning and they do something that for all of recorded history had never been done before. That's um, cool. That's it's it's shocking. And what was crazier, what really caught my attention, I knew this, I was covering psychology and neuroscience and was interested in peak performance. And I knew that, you know, most of the people I knew had horrific childhoods, came from broken homes, really bad, bad childhoods, had very little money, had very little education. There was a lot of booze. There was a lot of drugs. And under any other circumstances, this is a group of people you bet against. This is not a group of people who should go out and reinvent what is possible for our species on a regular basis. And I wanted to know what the hell was going on. And I also knew I'd, I'd injured myself a lot trying to chase professional athletes around mountains across oceans that I, I needed to like stop doing that basically, or I was going to really do some permanent damage. I'd broken a lot of bones along the way. So I took this question of what does it take to do the impossible into pretty much every domain imaginable. So like my, the books that we were talking about that you like with Peter Diamandis, those are explorations of the same question in abundance. It was individuals and small teams taking on impossible global challenges like poverty or healthcare shortages like that. My book Tomorrowland um, is a 25 year investigation into those kind of maverick innovators who took science fiction ideas and turned them into science fact technology and so forth. Bold was a look at, you know, business tycoons like Elon Musk and Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, people who built impossible business empires in, in near record time. And in the middle of all of this, I got very, very sick and I got mm. spent three years in bed with Lyme disease. Uh, I lost the job that I had spent a decade trying to get. I lost the girl. I thought it was everything you could lose and nearly went bankrupt trying to cure myself. And, uh, I was very, very ill. I, if you don't know what Lyme disease is, it's sort of like the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. And oh, right. So I couldn't, I couldn't move. The doctors didn't know if I was ever going to get any better after like three years. They sort of pulled me up meds. Um, they said, there's nothing more we could do for you, but your stomach lining is bleeding out. So we can't give you any more, any more antibiotics and, uh, and, and good luck. And that was where I was. And, and it was a very dark suicidal time. Um, I was, you know, I could, fun I could work like 10, 15 minutes a day. And then my brain sort of evaporated and I was in so much pain. I couldn't walk across the room and a friend showed up at my house in the middle of this darkness. And I was living in Los Angeles at the time in my own apartment. And she demanded that we go surfing. And it was, it was a ridiculous request. I hadn't been surfing in like five years. I couldn't walk across a room and I was just like, you're out of your freaking mind, blah, blah, blah. And she wouldn't leave my house hours and hours. And I was like, you know what? We will just go surfing today. I mean, like, what is the worst that can happen? Anything to get this woman to shut up. And they took me to Sunset Beach in Los Angeles, which is the wimpiest beginner wave in the world. And they carried me out to the lineup literally and gave me a board the size of a Cadillac. And 30 seconds later, a wave came. And muscle memory took over for a second. Like I saw the wave and my brain just went, oh, wave, spin board, paddle. And I did. And I spun the board around and paddled twice. It was a tiny wave. It was like two feet high. It was a warm day. It was like this was no energy. And I stood up on the wave 
And that was pretty much all the energy I had in the universe. Like that was probably it. And I stood up into a dimension I didn't even know existed. Like time had slowed to a crawl. I felt like I had panoramic vision. I was surfing incredibly well, which was really weird. And the craziest part was I felt amazing. I mean, there was no pain in my body whatsoever. And my head, my brain was back. It was clear. I was clear headed. I could think. And I, I was happy for the first time in three years. And that wave was so great. I caught four more waves that day. And I, I and that by the end of the fifth wave, you know, about a, a grand total of maybe like 45 seconds of total surfing time. I was, uh, I was disassembled and they brought me home and they put me in the bed and they kept me there for about a couple of weeks. I couldn't even go to my kitchen. I was so weak. I couldn't get out of bed to feed myself. So people had to bring me food. And on the 15th day, when I could walk again, this, I was just compelled by this memory of this incredible experience that felt so good. I caught a ride with my neighbor back to the beach and I did it again. Same thing happened, really potent, powerful, altered state of consciousness, didn't know what was going on and, you know, so forth. And over the course of about eight months, when the only thing I was doing differently was surfing, I went from about five to 10% functional up to about 80 to 90% functional. And I'm a science guy, right? Surfing is not a known cure for chronic autoimmune conditions. A and B, Lyme is only fatal if it gets in your brain. And I was having what you could really much, pretty much describe as, as mystical or quasi mystical experiences in the waves. And I was pretty sure I was having these experiences because the disease had gotten into my brain. So even though I was feeling better, clearly I was dying because there's no way these experiences were real. And I sort of lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell is going on with me. And I very quickly figured out that these states of consciousness have names. We call them flow states, being in the zone, runners high, whatever uh, you want to term them. And that uh, Herb Benson, who was then at Harvard, had uh, still is at Harvard, actually, had just mapped the neurobiology of what's known as the flow cycle. The flow state is a four-stage process. And he had sort of mapped what goes on neurochemically under each stage of the process. And he had noticed that as you move into flow, two things happen. There's a basically all the stress hormones are flushed out of your system. This is a big deal if you have an autoimmune condition. Autoimmune conditions are nervous systems gone haywire. So your nervous system doesn't know where normal is. It can't find homeostasis, so it can't get back there. So when you reset the nervous system as you enter flow, it's a really gives a lot of, it's very, very good for autoimmune conditions. And all the same neurochemicals boost the immune system. And Benson argued in his book, The Breakout Principle, he thinks this phenomenon is what's underneath many of the so-called cases of spontaneous healing. And which is, was really, and all this is stuff that has since been backed up again and again. And there's really good kind of neuroimmunology work on, on this topic. But what I also very quickly figured out because I had been talking to the athletes, I've been studying kind of these moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. And while everybody's stories were different, everybody was experiencing flow. They were all talking about whether it was, you know, Dean came in in the lab inventing a water purifier, talking about being so lost in, in kind of working on his inventions that time seemed to slow down and blah, blah, or surfers in, in waves telling the same kind of stories. And I was like, wow, flow, this state of consciousness that helped me go from seriously subpar back to normal. I think it's helping normal people go all the way up to Superman. And I have pretty much from that moment forward, dedicated my life to studying the neurobiology of flow science. And and that's essentially what I do these days. I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and we're the largest 
I think, neurobiology-based peak performance uh, research and training company in the world. On the research side, we work with Stanford, USC, UCLA, um, Imperial College London, a bunch of other people. And we, we study what goes on in the brain when humans are performing at their very best. And then we use what we learn to uh, train everybody from kind of the U.S. Special Forces through Fortune 100 executives through the general public. And we train on average about a thousand people a month. So we've got um, really great neuroscience on the front end and one of the largest sort of data sets on what works with people on the back end. In, in your books, you know, there's all these stories you've heard from different athletes about flow, but what are the commonalities in the stories that made you realize like, wow, this is a real phenomena because I hear it from so many different people in so many different ways. So when you cover action sports, you, there are only so many publications you could write for them at back then. And one of them was outside magazine and outside magazine in the early 1990s had assembled maybe one of the greatest collection of writers ever. Um, Outside Magazine was spun out of Rolling Stone, basically. And Rolling Stone had all, all the best writers and all the ones who were interested in environmental issues in the outdoors went to outside. And I got there right around then. Uh, and there was a guy named Rob Schultes who was working for Outside who wrote a book called Bone Games. And right as I was doing all my early research, Bone Game came out. And Bone Games was an investigation of mountaineering, what was then called extreme running, right? We would now call it ultra marathoning or triathlons or whatever, but was then extreme running and uh, a lot of so-called spiritual practices, Zen and, and things like that. And it was, look, he was looking at this weird intersection and he used the term flow. And interestingly, while almost all the research on flow, but uh, so Rob wrote this book and I wasn't really a psychology guy. I was a neuro guy. And his book, for whatever reason, it's literally the only book that came out in 25 years that looked at this question. It looked at the neurobiology of flow only for half a chapter. He wasn't a neuroscientist. He wasn't anything. He just talked a little bit about neurochemicals and it dovetailed in with I, my real specialty was studying animals and animal behavior and animal ethology and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. I was really running around the world, um, science wise with scientists who were studying animals in the wild, so field biologists and things like that. And he just, they, we were, I was doing some neurochemistry work. So suddenly it was a language that I spoke and he was talking about stuff that I understood and it just clicked for me. And that was really, what unlocked it. And one of the reasons I think we got as far as we got is I never really, like a lot of the answers to your question are psychological. I took a neurobiological approach, but flow has six core. How do you know you're in flow? Ask a psychologist and they'll say, well, the state has six core psychological characteristics. So basically ways the state makes you feel there's complete concentration on the task at hand. There's a merger of action and awareness there's a the time dilation. Time passes strangely. It either speeds up. You'll get a freeze or you'll get uh, you'll, five hours will go by in like five minutes. Or you get the freeze frame effect that happened to me when I was out surfing. Your sense of self will disappear. And on the low end of this, this is just like bodily awareness goes away. Like you sit down to write a quickie email and you get lost in it and time passes. You don't even notice and you pop up an hour later and your body sensation isn't gone. Your, your sense of self didn't vanish, but you realize, oh crap, I got to go to the bathroom and you sort of run, run to take a piss because that whole all went away. That on the other end of that, the extreme version of that is your whole sense of self disappears and you get a sense of, of oneness with everything. 
If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Um, or uh, sometimes out-of-body experiences. And I, I've done a lot of work on the neurobiology of what causes those sensations. And and that was sort of my my way into actually flow science. My first mentor was a guy named Dr. Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was the guy who figured out where that feeling of oneness with everything comes from in the brain. And so that oh, was wow. where it started, my work started. A lot of your examples in your books also seem to be from athletes, you know, Doing well, things, but one of my books specifically, which is what you keep referencing, Rise of Superman is about athletes. I've got a book about scientists. I've got a book about entrepreneurs and business people. Um, I, you know, there's, I depends on the book is the subject, but the, I, I did one book on surfing, uh, and another book on, on kind of all action sports. And those are the, those are the two. And they're very visible, good examples, but it's really worth pointing out. And the reason I sort of jumped at the question is, People hear flow and they think athletes, action sports, or right. artists, musicians. Flow is universal. It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. We are all hardwired for flow, and flow is literally defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. It is how all humans are hardwired to do peak performance and just to put it in context, studies have shown that we spend about 5% of our work life in flow, often without noticing it. And one of the most common flow states on earth is middle managers in conversations at work in what's known as interpersonal flow. This is two people getting into a really intense conversation and getting so lost in the conversation that everything else just seems to disappear for a little while. That's one of the most common flow states on earth. Flow is extraordinarily common in business. McKinsey, by the way, when we talk about flow as optimal performance, we re mean really optimal. McKinsey, the business consultancy, did a 10-year study. And grain of salt because it was self-reported, but that said, they went around the globe talking to CEOs about how much more productive they believed they were in flow. 500% more productive was the average answer. And that seems crazy until you start looking at the actual numbers. So flow boosts a whole bunch of different things. Motivation, productivity, I just talked about with that productivity number. McKinsey found the Department of Defense found soldiers in flow will learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. Work that we've done at the Flow Research Collective uh, in conjunction with some folks at USC. They did some work on this at, at Harvard, some work at the University of Sydney in Australia. We've all found that creativity will jump 400 to 700% in flow. So that's creativity, creative problem solving, creative decision-making, innovation, et cetera. Um, and the list goes on. That's just a small list. So this is a huge uptick in performance that is available to anyone anywhere. Um, and that's well, sort that's, of the point of the new book. That's my question though, is if you're, you know, if you're not an extreme athlete, if you're just like a sedentary regular person, how do you get into flow when you want to, or how do you get into it at all? So uh, it turns out flow is remarkably easy to train if you kind of start from the neurobiology underneath it. And I want to, okay. let's just start by saying peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to, to work for us rather than against us. There's nothing fancy going on. It's just getting our biology to work for us. Flow states, by the way, the art impossible is not just about flow. It is about a suite of skill sets because flow is absolutely necessary for peak human performance, but it's not sufficient. There's more going on, but you're asking questions about flow. So I'm, I'll stay there. Um, but 
Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 of them that have been discovered. There's probably way more, but that's how many we know. And the easiest thing to understand here is that flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is, is really focused in the right here, right now. And that's what all of flow's triggers do. If you look under the hood of these 22 triggers, what they all do is they help drive attention into the present moment. They do it one of three ways. They either drive neurochemicals, norepinephrine and or dopamine into our system. These chemicals do a lot of different things. They're multi-tools, but uh, they will amp up focus and attention and excitement. And, you know, so when, when they're in our system, we really pay attention to the thing that's in front of us. Or these triggers will sometimes also uh, and or lower cognitive load. That's all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time. If I lower cognitive load, I tend to free up a lot of en extra energy and you can then repurpose that for attention. So that's what all the triggers do. And uh, they start from the, the simple and the most obvious. Flow follows focus. Complete concentration is a flow trigger. What the research shows, in fact, is that... Um, the most to maximize flow 90 to 120 minutes worth of uninterrupted concentration is one of the best tools available. That's what we train people to do. We work with a ton of organizations. And the first thing I do when I work with an organization is I tell people that if they can't hang a sign on their office door, that says, fuck off. I'm flowing. You can't do this work. <laughs> Just not forget about it. You're done. You're being done. You literally can't do this work. If you have an open office plan, it's a disaster. Um, and the, the truth start their day with this period of uninterrupted concentration, unless you happen to be a night owl. Physiologically, usually it's best to start your day with it. You want to, uh, there's, there's conditions to build around this, this 90 to 120 minute block of uninterrupted concentration. But if you're a night owl, you want to start your evening session that way. But, uh, and you want to start it by focusing on your hardest, most important task. The thing that if you, if you did it, got through it, um, would be the biggest win for your day. Now there's a lot more going on, but that's just a really simple place to start. There's also a series of what are known as dopamine triggers. These are all things that produce dopamine in your brain. Novelty produces dopamine in your brain. When we encounter unpredictability, that produces dopamine in your brain. Complexity, which is like what happens when you look up at a night sky and you see something kind of overwhelming perceptual vastness will trigger dopamine. Insight, when we connect two ideas together uh, in an interesting way, that releases dopamine. Risk-taking, social, emotional, intellectual, creative, physical all release dopamine. This is why action sports work so well. Action sports packed with novelty, risk, complexity, unpredictability, and mm. opportunities for insight. That's one of the big reasons. But anytime, really, truly, anywhere you see a culture of innovation, you see a culture built around flow triggers, think about Silicon Valley. What's important to Silicon Valley? Novelty, complexity, unpredictability, insight, risk, huge flow triggers. Um, so any, and any place you see a culture of innovation, you tend to see a culture built around that prioritizes flow triggers. Uh, something very unusual happened in action sports in the 1990s that sort of escalated this and really stepped on the gas, a couple things, and just how they were taking advantage of the flow triggers, but there's nothing fancy going on. It's always that way. And we could go, we could go on for, from here, but you're right. sort of getting the idea. And the, and the truth of the matter is when you understand how the triggers work, and as I said, flows a cycle. So you, it's also helpful to understand the four stages of the flow cycle, where it starts, where it ends, 
Um, but if you, that cycle is sort of the map of the territory and the triggers are, you know, best deployed at certain points along that map. And if you know these things, we test flow pre and post most of, uh, most of everybody we, we train up. Um, and we see a 70 80% boost in flow. Uh, and that's not just our Kung Fu. It's what happens with the biology. Now that is not sustainable on its own. There's other stuff you have to do to put it quickly and easily so people can wrap their heads around it. Flow amplifies a shitload of stuff. We named a bunch motivation, productivity, creativity, learning, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are essentially skill sets. So while flow can massively jack these skills up, if you don't have the skills, it's sort of like turbo boosting a car and then giving it bicycle tires. Bad things can happen, right? You start, you crash, you can't sustain it. Um, so that was one of the other reasons I wrote Art of Impossible. Art of Impossible examines, motivate, it, it, it sort of looks at the, the quartet of skills that are at the heart of, of all kind of impossible great goal achievement, which is motivation, which sort of gets you into the game, learning, which allows you to continue to play. Creativity helps you steer, especially if you're going after really high, hard goals and you don't know how to get there. You need the creative problem solving to be able to get there. And then flow allows you to turbo boost this whole equation. That's what the new book really focuses on. And it turns out not only is there a sequence here, there's an order to it. Your biology is designed to work in a kind of specific order in a certain sequence. And if you get it all working for you, it sort of works like flow. I mean, one, everything starts producing way more flow, but you just get farther faster and with a lot less effort and heartbreak. Doesn't mean it's easier. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying it's easier. Um, Flow correlates by the way, directly with well-being, overall life satisfaction, meaning, purpose. We know this. We know that the people who score off the charts for all those things are the people with the most flow in their lives. Psychologists now define three levels of happiness and the, the upper two levels available all humans are basically uh, levels of flow. Um, one is a high-flow lifestyle, um, which could be an action sport athlete, could be a musician, could be really anything that you know, coding produces a tremendous amount of flow. I'm a writer that produces a tremendous amount of flow. Architecture, the list goes on and on. Jobs that produce a lot of flow. That, but, and the level above that, the best we get to feel on the planet is what's known as uh, meaning and purpose. It's literally a high flow lifestyle where the thing that produces the most flow is coupled to a, something greater than yourself, a cause greater than yourself. Um, and so there essentially are, people in flow are, are very happy either when they're in flow or when they come down from it, they're just happy about reliving the experience. They are. And it, and it really tunes up meaning and purpose a lot in, in, in kind of foundational ways, but I have to clarify a little. So happiness is defined as how do you feel right here, right now in this exact moment? And, uh, Turns out, by the way, happiness, Dan Harris was sort of right. For a lot of complicated reasons, we can get 5 to 10% happier, but we can't do a whole hell of a lot more there. If you're curious, we could talk about what will make you happier and, and what works, but um, there's not a whole lot you can do there. Flow is not about happiness, and we could talk about why, but the most important flow's trigger is what's known as the challenge skills ratio. And basically the idea here is that we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill sets. So you want to stretch, but not snap. This is 
not exactly a happy place to be because you are pushing on your skills to their utmost. You are outside your comfort zone as a general rule. And a high flow lifestyle means you're spending a tremendous amount of time outside your comfort zone, pushing on your skills. So flow does not always correlate to happiness. You can have a lot of very, very difficult moments on a, on a, in, in a high flow lifestyle, but it will mean more. You will get a lot farther. You will accomplish a great deal more. And, uh, it will, it will come with much deeper feelings of overall well-being and life satisfaction, but that's different than happiness. Well, I'm thinking of some of my experiences. Like, what would you call it when you've been through an experience and, um, it was difficult. You did it. You performed well. And then you feel like a rush having done it. Now that it's done, you just feel like that was awesome. What, what is that? Is that what the, that's end awesome. state of flow is? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that could be, it could be other things. Um, it depends what kind of rush it is. If it's just, you could just be describing dopamine, right? Uh, and a, a couple other, and flow is a cock, cocktails like five or six different, uh, kind of neural chemicals and there's a profound change in other things in the brain. So when we talk about flow, there's very precise neurophysiologically phys- physiology underneath it. So I would have to, I'd have to really know more about the experience, et cetera, et cetera. And, and because flow is also very similar to a bunch of other altered states of consciousness, including trance states and things like that. There's a lot of differences, but it's sort of similar. What was your goal with this latest book? Is it just to, you know, to Honestly, talk more about what you studied with? There's, uh, let me go, let me sort of tell you a little bit of what high level after 30 years of studying those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. I came to uh, a very, first of all, I came to a really interesting conclusion, which is I didn't meet anybody who went after what I've come to call capital I impossible doing that, which has never been done. Nobody I met along the way started out chasing that. Everybody started out chasing what I've come to call small I impossible. Small I impossible is all that stuff you think is impossible for you. So Mm. this could be learning how to get paid doing what you love or your experience overcoming a, a, a deep illness, right? A life-threatening illness rising out of poverty is a small lie impossible. Um, when I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio in the seventies, it was a steel town, right? I wanted to be a writer from the time I was five years old or some such shit. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anybody who was a writer. I didn't know how you became a writer. And I mean, like it was like waking up one morning and being like, mom, dad, I think today I'd like to be an elf. No, 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 a hobbit. When I grow up, I want to be a hobbit, right? I mean, like, I had no idea how you did that. And that's what I mean by small lie impossible. Very, 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 not a clear path between point A and point B, and statistically very poor odds of success. Another small lie impossible is becoming world class at anything, right? Could be podcasting, could be stamp collecting, could be pharmacology. They're all small lie impossibles. And what I started to realize is, Nobody gets to capital I impossible. They just go after small I impossible after small I impossible after small I impossible. And sooner or later, that capital I impossible is what's next. And let me, that sounds kind of crazy, but let me, let me give you an example that, that brings us home. It's from action sports. It's a dramatic example, but it, I, I like it. I met Laird Hamilton, a big wave surfer, uh, when he was, he was 33. I was 27. And we were talking about this very thing. 
and he said he had just invented toe and surfing, right? He, he said, you know, people see me on a 50 foot wave and they look at me and they, man, that is just impossible. No way I could never do that. He said, you know what they don't see? They don't see me at three on a three foot wave and four on a four foot wave and five on a five foot wave and six on a six foot wave. And they didn't see me last week on a 49 and a half foot wave. They see me on a 50 foot wave and think, wow, man, that's impossible. And I think Laird, come on, man, you're going six inches better than where you were last week. What are you doing? That's what, that's how it tends to get done. And more importantly, more importantly, nobody I met, I met, I, I, I wrote about the most extraordinary people ever people who literally did, did that which has never been done who reinvented what was possible for our species they they did extraordinary things they're extraordinary people none of them started out that way they all started out just like you and me that is absolutely what i can tell as far as i can tell every one of us is hardwired for extraordinary we don't know it because Human capability tends to be an emergent property. It emerges like flow when we use our skills to the utmost again and again and again. That's the only way we can actually find out what we're capable of. In fact, this, this goes down to the, the most basic, simple level. There's tons of research that now shows that it doesn't matter who you are. I, if, I, if I were to suggest an activity to you, until you have tried the activity and started to get good at it. You have no idea if you're going to be good at it or if you're going to like it. That's what the data shows over and over and over again. And I wrote art of impossible because after 30 years of working on the neurobiology, there's a formula. Everybody does the same sets of things to go A to B. And of course there's a formula. There's just our biology. There's just getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And what has happened over the past 10 years and what I've had a ringside seat for because of the work we do at the Flow Research Collective, twofold. One, unlike all the other elements of peak performance, which are, you know, there's guys who work and men and women who are brilliant who work on focus or who work on motivation or grit or aspects of creativity, like all the stuff that I'm writing about in this book, there are experts in each of those domains. Flow, because it amplifies all of them, I just had to understand all of them at once. Combi the combination of that and what's gone on in neuroscience over the past 10 years where we've started to really decode the processes, the mechanism underneath this. If you're looking at the big picture, you're like, oh my God, all this stuff, it's one system. It's designed to work together. It's designed to work in an order. Whenever you see the impossible become possible, this is what you're seeing. Even better, there's a bunch of onboarding stuff. There's a bunch of stuff you have to do to get into the game. But by the end, you get to the end of Art Impossible. If you really are interested in leveling up your game and going big, there's about six things you have to do every day and seven things you got to do every week. Chances are you're probably, especially if you're anywhere, you know, towards the top of your field in the world whatsoever, you're probably doing a bunch of these things already. Because as I said, there's just getting your biology work for you rather than against you. So there's a fine tuning thing, right? Most people read The Art Impossible who are at the top of their game and they go, holy crap. I was doing like 65% of this. I just didn't know why. And I didn't know there was an order and a better, like oh, some science here and a map. And I didn't know about these other things. That's what usually happens. And depending on what, you know, if you come out of the, the sort of like the Navy SEAL community or the U.S. Special Forces, I don't have to train you in grit, 
right? You've got all the grit skills you'll ever need. I don't even have to train you in flow. You can't be a Navy SEAL without being great at that stuff, but you're crappy at recovery. You're probably crappy at a couple of, you know what I mean? Like I could, if you tell me what you do for a living, I could probably tell you where, what your blind spots are. I might be wrong. I'm often wrong, but I've got a pretty good shot at it. We take our blind spots tend to come with our professions and our choices. I can, it, you know, you, you do a lot of work around lawyers. Um, lawyers have a difficulty with peak performance because peak performance requires, um, what's known as a growth mindset. And the problem is that when you have a job that demands you are an expert, um, so this could be a job where you have to stand on stage and give lectures or a job where like lawyers, where people are calling you and like, you have to give really hardcore advice and you have to be right. Um, and it's a rear guard action that tends to produce a fixed mindset and it, 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 it's easy to switch them, but it, so I don't know if you've ever given a speech, but you know how when you get off stage, from yes, giving have, speech, yeah. so it's really hard to listen to anybody talk to you about anything. You just sort of like, you have a very fixed mindset. You're very set in expertise mode. And then you have to sort of relax a little bit and start asking questions again before you come open to other information. That's because being on stage, being an expert, you, you're defending territory. So your brain just develops a fixed mindset. It's just an, it's a safety and security thing that the brain does automatically, but it's, it's problematic coupled to the fact that because lawyers and accountants also, they fight rear guard actions all the time that tends to produce pessimism more than optimism. And optimism is also very sort of foundational to peak performance for a lot of different reasons. This isn't like you want to have realistic, practical optimism. You don't want this does not mean you want to just be really, really, you know, pie in the sky about our things. Um, right. But what Matt Ridley would call rational optimism is really important for peak performance. And so lawyers, their problems when they get into the peak performance game is um, they tend to be a little too negative and they tend to uh, slip into fixed mindsets and that fixed mindset will block flow. Um, this is Carol Dweck's work. She did a really cool study with Formula One drivers where uh, she's at Stanford and she was looking at Formula One drivers and she figured out the ones who had uh, fixed mindsets when, when you're driving a race car, shit goes wrong all the time, right? You have to forget about it and get on to the next thing. And if you have a fixed mindset, you don't think learning is possible. When an error shows up, you get really mad at yourself and you think you're going to lose the race. If you have a growth mindset, when you make an error, you're like, oh, okay, I screwed up this corner, but I'll get it better next time. And you just get back into it. And it tends to correlate with high flow experiences and with winning in Formula One races. Um, but lawyer, so that's where lawyers tend to have an issue. There's other stuff going on. And by the way, for anybody listening, if you, if you want to, uh, no more. If you go to www.flowblocker.com, we built the diagnostic. There are six really common major flow blockers that most people have, tend to have one or two of these. It's just a free diagnostic anybody can take. We've built it in. It'll, it'll give you action steps on the back end. Okay. This is what you uh, do. It's super useful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So real practical, well, real easy. You said you hung out with Laird Hamilton and you know, he, he surfed a 50 foot wave, tow in, et cetera. What are the stories surrounding the moment in time when someone got to the big eye impossible, when they accomplished their, their feat that had never been done so, before? Do they yeah, have a particular story? So I actually can give you the exact answer you're, you're looking for. 
so Laird, I mean, Laird did a ton of stuff, but if you want to see the thing that Laird will probably go down in history for above all, Google the Millennium Wave. The Millennium Wave was this random freak rogue wave that broke one day at Chopu and Laird happened to be the guy towed into it. And it was three, Chopu's the biggest, most ferocious wave on the planet. It's the wave that scares everybody the most. And the wave he towed into was a rogue wave. It's the product of two waves stacking on top of each other. And it happens very rarely. And he got a perfect one. And it was two to three times bigger than anything AB had ever surfed in the history of surfing. You can Google Millennium Wave, you'll see it. And Laird will tell you, because I've, it's in Rise of Superman. The thing about flow, he, so Laird will say, if you ask him, when you go there, it's always the same. You are, and it is, and that's it. And I know this because not only did he say that to me about Chopu, he said that to me way back when we were 20, he was, I was 27 and he was 33. That was how he described being in the zone on flow. And what I later learned is what he is describing as one of the giant sort of biological mysteries of flow. So every single other state of consciousness you'll ever experience, it's different. Every psychedelic trip is sort of different. Every fit of anger or joy or sadness, they're different. There's, there's, there's unique qualities to all of them. Flow is always phenomenologically that's a fancy way of saying this is how it makes us feel flow is phenomenologically constant it's always the same experience and people have been writing about this mystery that it's always the same experience since four thousand years ago five thousand years ago it's very old the ancient greeks worked on this problem a lot of people have worked on this problem for a very long time um, Martin Seligman in his book, Authentic Happiness, the positive psychologist does a, there's a footnote about this that I think is some of the best work anybody's done on it. It's really cool. But anyways, this, and we now sort of understand why that happens neurobiologically. We understand what causes that consistency, but it's really rare, right? Even dreams are more varied often, uh, especially emotionally than flow. And so flow is the most consistent experience we seem to have on the planet, uh, which is really, which is very interesting. Hmm. So the stories uh, from people like Laird, they're just, I mean, they're, they're all, all totally unique. They're, they're all totally unique, except the experience is all the same, right? You could be talking to Yo-Yo Ma about playing the cello. You could be talking to William DeBell about inventing the world's first artificial vision implant. Peter Diamandis about opening the space frontier or Laird Hamilton are about surfing a 50-foot wave, they're going to tell you the same. The experience they had at those moments of insight are always the same. And that's, uh, that's, part, that, you know, that's part of the puzzle. Uh, that was part of the puzzle of flow. If you're into these kinds of intellectual puzzles, I've been on the, you know what I mean? I've been solving the greatest mystery in the history of the world as far as I'm concerned for the past 25 years. I get to work on the coolest, philosophical neurobiological problems ever i think but i'm a total yeah, that, that, that's what i want to ask you what's what achievement are you headed towards where you're just gonna be like wow i did it what's what's your big eye impossible so for you? let me go let me let me there's a handful of them one is the other reason i wrote the art of impossible this is uh this is really uh sort of the other side of the equation which is i have been because of my work with Peter Diamandis, Singularity University, 
Uh, I, a bunch of other, I run a, I found an organization called Planet Home that uses the same kind of technologies as Singularity University, uh, uses just Singularity University is very focused on solving gland global challenges that tend to help people. Planet Home is, is very interested in plants, animals, and ecosystems. Um, and as a reporter, this is sort of what my beat was. So I, you know, I wrote about people who did the impossible, who have, have saved, gone out to save the world and done amazing things. But for every one person I wrote about, I met a thousand who were just about equally as capable, right? And they had real honest to God, save the world, change the world, do some damn good in the world potential and didn't get there. And it wasn't often the entrepreneurial stuff that screwed them up. It was, they would trip over themselves. They would get in their own way. Basic human psychology, biology, the stuff that I worked on. I was watching amazing people who could do stuff. You know, I can't solve water shortages in Africa. It's not my skill set, but I certainly can help people who are tripping over themselves on the way. So that's the other reason I wrote Art of Impossible because it's, I just wanted to write a how-to manual to do this stuff because um, mm. nobody had done it. That, that is, is cool. that's one of the things I care about more specifically. I care about that um, uh, because of plants, animals, and ecosystems. I'm biodiversity is very important to me. So I've worked on that issue for a very long time. My wife and I, as you pointed out, run a dog sanctuary um, we do hospice care and special needs care for very sick animals. Um, we've done that for 15 years in a lot of different guises. Um, and, you know, I do a bunch of bigger stuff that way. But most importantly, the answer to your question, because you're a, a tech guy, is uh, you're going to like this better. This is, we have a research division of the Flow Research Collective, and where we're going is the following. So I mentioned earlier that flow states have triggers and that flow states also massively heighten learning. So it turns out that flow triggers, video games, by the way, are built around flow triggers. The more successful and addictive video games, uh, they're built around things like the challenge skills balance that I talked about earlier and several of these other dopamine triggers. And sometimes this is known. There's some of this work is done in the video game, but oftentimes it's just like, they're just going for whatever works and this is what works. But the video game industry has been built on the backs of it, but video games are a very crude tool. V virtual reality and augmented reality is not. V video games can get to seem to get at like three to five of flows triggers, but VR and AR can get at almost all 22. And some of the ones wow. that we're starting to discover, maybe more of them. So we realized uh, that you could use VR, AR to create immersive, high flow learning environments. And if you couple AI to it, you can get individually customizable learning environments that are built to kind of very, very, very much the user. And so self-directed learning is always the most powerful learning. It amplifies a whole bunch of stuff um, that's really great for learning high flow environments. So what we're doing is we're trying to build an AI based VR driven high flow learning environment, accelerated learning environment. Predominantly our, 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 our first goal is worker retraining. Uh, there's going to be, for example, autonomous trucking is coming. Trucking is the largest blue collar employer in America. And all of these people are probably going to need new jobs and to be reskilled by the early 2030s. And um, when huge swatches of the blue collar population is unemployed, 
bad things tend to happen. So, uh, right. So I tend, I, I think this is a really uh, cool thing to be doing. And that's, so that's, this is sort of where we're looking. Obviously the same platform we're developing can be used for education and, you know, VR gives you a totally distributed classroom. So it's distributed, self-directed, high learning, accelerated learning environments, um, really good education platform. I just don't want to get into a curriculum battle with parents over what kids should be learning. So I'm not going to, I'm not going that particular route. I will let somebody who is way more qualified to, you know, win that fight or even take up that fight. And who cares? I don't actually care. I just care about building the technology. And, you know, I said that I grew up in Cleveland around blue color people. So I like helping blue color people. I think they tend okay. to. Use- so people should get the art of impossible. It's coming out soon. What, January 19th? January 19th. Yeah. Okay. It'll be available everywhere. And then, for someone to do a course of study through your books, what, what would be the path that you'd recommend? Yeah, so if you want to train with us, flowresearchcollective.com uh, is, is everything Flow Research Collective, or you can go to the, our, our main, our, our, so our, we do an eight-week digital training. Everybody goes through our training, goes through with a PhD psychologist and or PhD neuroscientist as a coach. I, I think I have the best coach. Scott Barry Kaufman, for example, formerly Columbia University, world's leading expert on creativity, coaches with us. So you can like, we have world-class coaches and uh, you, so you go through the training that way and you can go to zero to dangerous.com or flow research collective. If you want more information. And by the way, flow research collective.com, go to the video page. There is hours and hours and hours and hours of free flow information, training, all that stuff, or, you know, pretty much, Half of my books have been about it, but Art of Impossible is the how-to manual. All right, well, that's phenomenal. It's, I mean, it's certainly not boring speaking to you, and you're you're into all kinds of amazing things. So, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been really cool to talk to you. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for your interest. I appreciate that. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.